All right, thanks, Josh. There we go. So humility, there we go. At the center, uh, that's the centerpiece of Philippians, as I understand it. Philippians chapter 2, we'll get there about the humility of Christ. But that humility, uh, that, that center of gravity actually pulls believers together around the unity of the gospel. Uh, because what happens in the sun is as these two elements come together, hydrogen and helium, that they're pulled together in the source of gravity. Uh, in the same way, this humility pulls believers together around the cause of Christ. And just like in the sun, when those two elements, hydrogen or helium, are pulled together and create this enormous energy, basically a nuclear reaction at the center of the sun, it radiates out this heat to a dark world, which is joy. And all of this joy radiates out of Philippians. So yes, Philippians is about joy, but only as a consequence in some ways of what Philippians is really about. The way the humility of Christ binds believers together around uh, the cause of Christ. And we actually saw that last week when we got to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 1, and, and specifically verses 3 through 8, uh, which I'll read in just a moment. But... Um, there were two sources of joy that are brought out here in verses 5 and verse 6. Verse 5 is a circumstance. Paul's, Paul says, there's joy in my prayer when I think of you because of a circumstance. You are committed to the gospel, not just in sort of uh, passively sending money to a missionary, but you're actually taking on the heat of the gospel and you're still hanging in there with me. They're suffering the cost of the gospel. It's, uh, it's evident to Paul that, they, that the kingdom of Christ means something to them and that they're binding together to care about the gospel by caring for Paul in various ways and being associated with Paul in various ways. And that leads to verse 6. When I see this circumstance here that's causing me joy, it points to something else. It means something. I, it means that I see in you the evidence of the work of God's unstoppable grace. <clears throat> and maybe the quickest way to illustrate this, you've seen me use this before, is to think of an apple tree. And so this, this apple tree is producing fruit. But, you know, interestingly, the average apple tree, when you plant it in the ground, it's about eight years before it starts to produce fruit. And so just pretend you're the apple tree for a moment. And during those eight years, you're kind of wondering, you know, am I alive? You know, is there really fruit on me? And then you finally get some fruit, but the fruit's real temporary. And then you go through these winters and you think, oh, no, I've lost my fruit. And over the years, that apple tree becomes more and more robust, more and more fruitful. And in a sense, it becomes more confident that it actually is an apple tree. And so the gospel partnership is our fruit, our commitment to the gospel, which points to the fact that it assures us that, our, that our, we're rooted in God's unstoppable grace. And that's how assurance works together. And when we come to this verse, uh, verse 6 today, I want you to first see it in its context. So read with me uh, verses 3 through 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Actually, I guess you don't want to read it with me out loud, but there we go. Uh, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This was the verse 6, the verse we're going to look at this morning. It was probably one of the first verses I ever uh, memorized as a, as a young Christian. Uh, it was just one of those verses that said so much and uh, gave me such hope. Uh, but interestingly, if you just were to look at this text grammatically, and I think the next slide actually removes it, you could actually read through this. Paul could say, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, for you all partakers with me of grace. And uh, and in one sense, it's an unnecessary verse. It doesn't really, you can take it out and you still have a good flow of thought. But what I want to suggest to you today is it's an absolutely necessary verse. This verse Philippi, or this, uh, this verse six is hugely necessary. So I want you to ask a question for just a moment. Why insert verse 6? Uh, why, why insert verse 6? In fact, I think the next slide, is that, uh, I'm trying to remember, is that the, well, there we go, all by itself. Um, but <clears throat> if this really wasn't necessary to the flow of thought, well, it's the same question to ask, why is there a Romans 8 in the Bible? Why, why does God in Romans chapter 8 say, in 39 verses, the same thing over and over and over again. It begins with, therefore, there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. And it ends with, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Why is it that God gets down on his knees almost, looks us right in the face and says, I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. For that matter, why Romans, this book in the New Testament, which is probably the clearest, most well laid out argument for the the primary message of the whole Bible. Why are there eight chapters telling us what God did for us before there's only three or four chapters when God tells us what to do? Why is that pattern not only in Romans, but why is that pattern throughout so much of the Bible? Why is it that almost every single time God ushers a command in the Bible, he surrounds it with dozens of promises? Why is it that in 1 Peter, as we just read, as Paul stood up here and read us for this, why all of these, you know, blessed be the God who's done this for us and this for us and this for us and this for us. Therefore, fix your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you, not the guilt that you're going to experience. Why this constant repetition? Why in the book of Hosea does God picture his own heart as someone who's had a spouse that's cheated on him. And he wants to just give up this spouse. But then he finally does something so strange out of the mouth of God in Hosea 11. He says, I can't divorce you. How can I give you up? Why would God say that to such a rebellious people? What do, what do all of these verses say about us as human beings? What do all these verses together say about us as human beings? So here's, here's the point. Here's the point of the message. Did I put this up there? Go ahead. And, there we go. I, I'm having a hard time remember my slides. But what I want to do today is say, why does God repeatedly, in his word, 
assure us of his work in saving us? The first answer is this. Because we naturally think it's our work. Because we naturally think it's our work. God, what does it say there in verse 6? I'm sure of this, that he who began, God began this work in us. God began this work in us. In in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, uh, it describes uh, this idea of receiving Jesus. And he says, when you receive Jesus, God gives you the right to become children of God. But just be clear of this. You were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man. You were born of God. You had absolutely nothing to do with the reason for why you're born again. That's actually meant to be an assurance, a promise, an encouragement. Not only does God begin this, he also completes it. Look at this beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's one of the verses that caught me years ago. I wrote it down in my prayer journal. Here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to one of the worst churches, at least the most immature churches in, um, in the whole Bible. And yet he starts it off like he does so many of his letters. I thank God when I think of you. I've seen all these gifts confirmed in you, even though they're being practiced in a very immature, selfish way. I've seen them all uh, confirmed in you so that you're not lacking any of them as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you, even you, to the end. Guiltless. Whoa, really? Guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You could actually read that Greek sentence as faithful God by whom you are called into the fellowship of his son. There it is again. Just this, this beautiful reminder that the God who began is the God who completes. God is from, he's the God from start to finish. And yet we naturally think God didn't begin it. It's in our nature. You see, we think we did when we believed or when we went forward, or when we prayed a prayer, or when we were baptized. We think we had a big part in it. Yes, we responded. Yes, we had a part in it. But here's the interesting thing. Even after we realized that God found us, we didn't find him. Even after that, it's natural to act as though it's now up to us. It's up to us to be filled with the Spirit, to obey, to yield our lives, to trust, to persevere, to repent. Yes, we're all, we're supposed to do those things. Let me be very clear, but we naturally operate as though God is passive in the process rather than actively engaged. It's in our nature to act as though, even though we have Christ in us, to act as though We're passive. In other words, God is ready there to help. He's ready to help us, but we have to call upon him before he will help us. God has all the power, but we control the volume. That's natural for us to think that way. In fact, it's the proof that's found in every single religion in the world except Christianity. I don't care how abstract, how how, uh, off the branch it is of a major religion, The common denominator in every single human religion except for Christianity is this. It comes down to a contract between the human being and whatever deity it is. If the human being does its part, the contract works with the deity. Guess what? Christianity is also a contract between a human being and God. 
a perfect human being who kept the contract for us. Psalm 34, I just happened to uh, be exposed to this just a couple days ago. Uh, listen to, this is another example of this. You'll see it in so many places in the Bible. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. Just think about that for a moment. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. It's as though God is walking around, hovering on our heels, ready to respond just like that. But even more than that, making sure certain things happen to us that we're not even aware of, protecting us. His ears are toward their cry. Whereas he goes on to say, when it comes to the evildoers, he's not even paying attention in one sense. He's turned away from them. So God is, again, in the midst of it all. And here's what happens. When we naturally think it's our work, it leads to a sort of self-willed Christianity. A self-willed Christianity where it's a me-focused obedience that flows out of our natural self-trust. Or if I were to be a little more honest, it flows out of our natural self-worship. Because that's true of every one of our hearts. By nature, we don't simply want to trust ourselves. We want to worship ourselves. Uh, so that's, the kind of, that's what happens when we begin to act as though it's ultimately our work. There's a second reason. I think this one's even more robust and encouraging. The reason God is repeatedly assuring us of his work in us is because it actually empowers trust in him, which actually winds up producing work in us. Grace and the gospel are so wildly unnatural, it's hard for us to believe it. There's, it's so wildly unnatural, it's hard for us to believe it. Because we naturally trust in ourselves, producing this kind of me-focused obedience, guess what happens? Our constant experience can be uncertainty in our relationship with God. One of the best ways, uh, or at least our status before God. We may think we're eternally secure, but we kind of wonder of our status. And here's the reason I know. If I asked you right now, this very moment, right now, regardless of what's going on in your life, how do you think God views you at this very moment? How do you think God views you? Not just from a sort of positional perspective, but from an emotional perspective. Did you know that God is wildly delighted in you if you belong to Christ? He is wildly delighted in you. He is madly in love with you. You have never felt the affections for someone else like he feels for you right now. I don't care what you've done. If you're in Christ, that is his disposition to you. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I'll tell you why it's hard to believe. It's because... We're focusing in on the wrong thing. Verse 6. There's two things about this. It's a good work and it's a progressive work. In just a few words in verse 6, Paul, our God, focuses me on the certainty of God's work rather than the inadequacy of my own. The certainty of God's work rather than my progress in my own. And notice, it's a good work that God does. God has promised out of his unlimited grace, not because of 
any of your efforts are mine. God has promised out of that unlimited grace not to answer every one of our prayers, not to spare us suffering, not to give us an easy life, and not even to save all the people that we once saved. God has not promised us any of those things. But he has promised us something else. He's promised to make us like Christ, to make us beautiful like Christ, a beaming light to a dark world. And this work is an unfinished work, but it's also, I used to read Philippians 1.6 before I began connecting other verses in the Bible, and I used to think, this is how I read it. I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, but not until the day of Jesus Christ. You're not going to see much between now and then. This is all going to happen in eternity. But that's actually not the way it works. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Believers are being transformed, not in the future, but even right now, as they're gazing on Christ. John chapter 15. Every branch in me, I'm going to prune it so that it bears more fruit. We will see progress in our life. We will see more apples on the tree. Think about the Philippians. The Philippians were at this current time. They were retreating. They had lost their leader. He was in prison. They were being shamed by their association with him. Things were heating up. Their opponents were heating up. Things were getting tougher. They were losing their perseverance because they were losing their trust in the gospel promise. And so what does God do? He assures them. That work that I began in you, I just wanted to be clear, it's not your work, it's mine, and therefore, it's unstoppable. You need that encouragement to persevere. That's what's happening in Philippians. And here's the, here's the wild thing about grace. When our shoulders are relieved, with the resp- relieved from the responsibility of having to obey Jesus, we actually obey Jesus. We actually wind up obeying him even more. And he also increases our capacity to suffer. In a day of excessive anxiety that we live in, here is certainty. Here is that defiant nevertheless we call joy. So how does it all work? How does it all work? How does King Jesus increase his reign over me through the gospel of grace? Well, again, it's very, it's very unnatural and very wild how he does it. He starts off by exposing us, and then he, he exposes our inadequate self-trust so that he can increase our trust in Christ. These things go together like two sides of the same coin. He exposes our inadequate self-trust, our self-worship, our pride, and he does it through his word. And you know what he primarily, how he primarily uses his word? He shows us the beauty of Christ, and we compare it to ourselves. And it exposes the contrast, whether it's Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, whether it's the verse I just said in 2 Peter 3.18, as we're gazing on Christ, we're being transformed, or whether it's Luke chapter 5, when, when Peter uh, is sent out to go fishing with the other disciples, and, um, and they catch a fish, and all of a sudden, Peter connects the dots. He suddenly, at first he was complaining, Lord, we've been fishing all night and caught nothing, and then they go catch it a huge abundance, and what does Peter say when he appears before Christ? Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And do you know in that one moment, 
If Jesus hadn't responded to Peter, it would have been self-willed religion. If all the Bible does is expose your fallenness and doesn't actually complete the circle, what you have is a religion just like every other religion in the world. But grace completes the circle. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. You're okay, Peter. It's amazing what he does when he, he has to expose us in order to wean us off of self-trust so that we will trust in Christ more. He has to break us in order to heal us, Hosea says, or Hebrews 12, or Amos 4. All of these ideas of God having to break us in order to build us back again. You see, you and I are much more dark than we know. If you've grown in Christ for any length of years, you've got to know what I'm talking about right now. That you have discovered darkness in the depths of your soul that was far worse than you ever thought before. Things about yourself that you just don't even like to admit to yourself. And God's not surprised with any of those discoveries. He's the one doing it. He's the one uncloaking you so that he can embrace you all the more. He doesn't turn away from our darkness. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He is actually drawn to our darkness the way a flawless cancer surgeon is drawn to operate on someone with cancer. He's on it to remove it. Romans calls this the obedience of faith. It's faith responding Not self-willed Christianity, it's trusting in Christ's Christianity. That's why Jesus calls it the easy yoke. Uh, This week I was was called over to um, my daughter's house to, they had a furnace problem. And uh, of course I wanted to save them money from that crooked industry. And uh, sorry, just kidding. (laughs) Cynicism, uh, terrible. Um, So... I went over, and in a short period of time, I broke the furnace. And uh, <laughs> now I respect the industry. But think of that illustration in the same way. When you get exposed to who Christ is and to the law, it's not meant to make you feel bad about yourself. It's meant to make you feel relief that an expert has been called in. Can you imagine if a furnace guy walked in at that very moment and for free fixed things? That's exactly what it means to be in Christ. When you're discovering your darkness, there's already someone who's not surprised by it, already knows how to fix it, already's on it before you discovered it, and he's the expert. Enjoy it. Go along with it. So what we do... Is very simple. Another way to, to speak about this is not just about exposure and increase. It's something that should sound familiar to you. It's about repenting and believing. This is the first dance step. When you first met Jesus or heard about Jesus, whether you're young or older, what did you do that began the, the work of God in you? Or more specifically, God's work already began in you before you did it. You repented. You recognized that you were a sinner, that there was sin there, and then you reached out for a savior. You believed, you trusted. You trusted him to do something about it. Repent and believe. For the rest of your life, that's your dance step. 
There is no other. It's as though, if you, could, if you can think about it this way, when you repent and believe, it's just Colossians 2 even says, therefore, as you've received Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? Repenting and believing, or what I like to call rejoicing. So you're just repeating that over and over again. I've actually described this sort of uncloaking of you and exposure as though I have been born again, again and again and again. So the light is just reaching deeper and deeper parts of me and it just feels like I'm being born again, again and again and again by that same movement back and forth. So just one comment I would make for you, just one simple application. Know the gospel deeply. Don't know the gospel superficially. Know it deeply. Know all the promises and how they work out in you so that you'll see the beauty of Jesus more vividly, more realistically. You'll, caught up in, you'll be caught up in the cause of Jesus. So one thing you could do is, during our months in Philippians, read it once a week, but read it slowly. Soak in it. Really ask God to expose you, not only to what still needs work in you, but more importantly, to God's work. There are plenty of great recommended resources like the Gospel Primer. Uh, the Gospel Primer is, uh, all you have to do is remember that title. Uh, the Gospel Primer is one of, one of those, it's a small book. I don't even think it's 120, more 20 than 120 pages. It's one of the few books I have read a half a dozen times in my life and need to read again and again. Let me just give you one small taste of it. But a resource like this will help you when you read your Bible see the grace of God and the work of God more than your own work. So here's a thought from the Gospel Primer. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status. And when I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. And there are Bible references for every one of these statements. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. And he longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. You see, in his heart, he's already forgiven me. And when I come to him to, to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. Oh, he does see my sin, and he grieves by, he's grieved by my sins. But his grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of his love for me. Over and over and over, this is all about the idea of being caught up in the certainty and progress and completion of God's work. And as a result, my works become a natural consequence because they're no longer where my focus is. So God repeatedly keeps assuring us, describing what he's doing in us so that we might have certainty 
of God's work in us over the inadequate work of myself. So, I want to take a minute. I think the kids are going to come in in a second as we prepare for the bread and cup here and say one last thing. And the guys can come forward who are serving communion and the worship team. As always, we'll come up the center aisle if you know this Savior I've been talking about, this King I've been talking about. You're invited to come up here and partake of this meal with him. There's one last little phrase here in this verse. The day of Jesus Christ. Or the day of the Lord. It has many different expressions in the Bible. Someone has called this the most important day in your life. The day of Christ Jesus. The most important day of your life. Are you ready? Have you, seen, uh, have you seen apples on the tree, so to speak? Are you ready to see him? Have you seen this evidence of gospel partnership in your life? Galatians chapter 5 has a verse that ought to make a whole lot of sense to you now after what you've heard this morning. But Paul says to the Galatians, Christ has set us free, so don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, it's so natural to us, even when we've been set free, to put ourselves back under the slavery of focusing in on our own works. And so I would say come here to all of you who know Christ as King and Savior. Come and feast on his work. Come and every time we take communion, we are focusing our attention on the only solid ground as we sang about today that gives us certainty in this life. This is the work of Christ. Indulge in it. <laughs> but if you're here and you're uncertain about that, or, or perhaps you don't even really care about this idea of grace and God's work in you, I would say this. Be, you can be certain of this. As sure as you're sitting here right now and listening to me and feeling real and alive, even more certain is the fact that every single one of us in this room will see Jesus Christ face to face someday. We'll have an audience with him. He'll either be your savior or he'll be your judge. You'll either recognize him or he won't recognize you. And so I would say to you right now, today, while you're alive, come out from that heavy-laden yoke that you're living under, that guilt, that work that you cannot complete, and take on the easy yoke and experience his deliverance from the sinking sand of your life that's built on self-trust and guilt. I am sure of this if you do. I'm sure of this if you do that today, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Let's take a moment, reflect on this, and then I'll pray for us, and then you come.
Lord, you know us better than we will ever know ourselves. You know that we can sometimes be so preoccupied with our own stumblings and sin and discouragement from that that we can't even see or hear you saying to us that we are yours and yours forever without any reservation all because of the price that your son paid and the presence of your spirit that finishes what you, our Father, have started. Oh, would you wrap us up in that assurance today? And for those who don't know you, may this be the day that they hear that first precious word of assurance from their forever Father. In the great name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.